Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Greetings, comrades. I'm proud to say that this episode is once again brought to you by therussansoft.com. If you want some Russian designs and some Soviet designs with some abstract art or whatever, a lot of good things in there, go to the store russansoft.com and use Eastern Border at checkout for a 10% discount or go to theeasternporter.lv and click on the banner there. It'll take you to the site instantly through our affiliate link, and you'll get a discount, and we'll get some benefits from it. Russiansoft.com, they're great friends of ours. They've actually sent us a nice little poster, and they sent us an Eastern Border t-shirt. The one and only. The last one left, actually. I, I still don't know what to do with it. But uh, today we're going back to history... And we're going to be talking about tanks once again. And we're going to be talking about the Kliment Voroshilov tanks, also known as just KV. These were a series of Soviet heavy tanks named after the Soviet defense commissar and politician Kliment Voroshilov, which operated with the Red Army during World War II. The KV tanks were known for their heavy armor protection during the early stages of the war, especially during the first year of the German invasion of the Soviet Union. In certain situations, even a single KV-1 or KV-2, supported by infantry, could halt large German formations. The German Wehrmacht at the time rarely deployed its tanks against the KVs, as their own armament was too poor to deal with the Russischer Koloss, or the Russian Colossus. However, this tank, which is um, one of the very few heavy tanks... Unlike T-34, which would be considered a medium tank, or main battle tank, the KV tanks were the heavy ones. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a wonderful disaster. It was just crazy. At that time, it was considered heavy, but we'll learn soon enough how the Soviets learned from their mistakes, and how the KV tank earned its place in history, but not exactly in the way that you would probably expect. KV was a wonderful disaster. And it was a disaster because it really didn't work that well, but, as we spoke in the T-34 episode, the Soviets learned from their mistakes. The 74-ton KVs were unwieldy, leaving them vulnerable to German troops maneuvering close on the flanks. 
However, they really couldn't blast it normally. A day after the German blitzkrieg into the Soviet Union in June 1941, more than 200 Nazi tanks were powering through Lithuania, occupied Lithuania at that time, because, well, the destiny of the Baltic states is not beautiful, to be said the least. The Luftwaffe knocked out the Soviets' nearby air bases, leaving counter-attacking armored columns early prey for German bombers. Desperate to staunch the bleeding on the June 23rd, the Red Army sprang its KV-1 and KV-2 tanks, which at the time packed some of the heaviest tank armor in the world, on the advancing Germans near Rasenjai. Soviet tanks were renowned for their ruggedness and reliability, though not their comforts. During World War II, at least. And early in the war, the lumbering Kliment Voroshilov tanks could easily defect the shells from most of Germany's field weapons. But the 47-ton KVs were unwieldy, leaving them vulnerable to German troops maneuvering close to the flanks. While individual KVs absorbed terrific punishment during the clash, the Wehrmacht went on to destroy 29 of them, among the more than 200 Soviet tanks lost at Rasenjai. At times, the Wehrmacht knocked out the beasts with explosive charges or lured them within the range of direct-fire artillery. The Germans herded the Russian giants towards their own heavy artillery, whose battles were brought down to the horizontal to fire point-blank at the advancing behemoths. Military historian Michael Jones wrote in his book Leningrad, State of Siege. The bulk of the Soviet armed forces in the Baltic countries were annihilated and the threat of the German advance from the flanks removed. The KV tank is quite a curiosity. In 1941, it was physically tougher than any tank the Germans could throw at it, but it failed to inflict decisive damage during those brutal early months. The KV was a product of a tank designer, Joseph Kotin. His competitor, Michal Koshkin, would develop the T-34, which we spoke about in the last tank episode. Kotin, however, embraced the theory that success on the battlefield meant dominating the enemy with the heaviest armor available. Some of his designs worked better than others. Cotton's multi-turreted T-28 suffered from weak suspension and, oddly, for a large tank, had thin armor. Most were destroyed during the opening months of Operation Barbarossa. His gigantic T-35, crewed by no less than 11 people, packed inside like sardines, was mechanically unfit for combat. The KV was, uh, better, I guess... But it definitely was rushed. Oh boy, it was rushed. Quote, In fact, it was ordered off the drawing board. This point was later glossed over by sending the prototypes to the Karelian Isthmus for testing at the end of the Finnish War. Uh, that is the Winter War, by the way, of the 1939. Stephen Sewell wrote a history of Soviet tanks for the Armour magazine. Kotin abandoned a multi-turreted configuration for the KV. Instead, he included a single turret with a 76mm cannon, the same that would later be on the T-34, with three 7.62mm machine guns rounding out the weapons, the same caliber used by AK-47s, mind you, and the standard Russian caliber 7.62. Most importantly, the tank boasted formidable armor, 90mm thick in the front and around 70mm on the side and rear, far outclassing the German panzers of the time. The KV-2 kept the KV-1's chassis, but swapped the turret and cannon for a 152mm howitzer. A terrifying weapon, surely, but even heavier and more unwieldy. 
Cotton produced relatively few of these gunned-up variants. It was about 250 total, maybe 200, something of that sort. My sources aren't clear on this. Cotton's design bureau produced more than 5,000 KVs during the war in more than two dozen different variants. The most kind of relatively successful was the KV-1S, which sacrificed armor for speed and included an upgraded transmission. By the way, another thing, you know, as usual when I speak about the Soviet tanks and everything, I have to remind my dear listeners that most of the stuff was, well, uh, <clears throat> borrowed from the United States due to their land lease. See, the KV-1's transmission, which Cotton basically stole from a United States-made tractor, simply sucked. Like, a lot. But one of the tank's biggest problems was the fact that the crew could barely see out of the damn thing. Once the war broke out, the KV-1 was soon revealed to be a death trap, Sewell wrote. Fear of angering Cotton prevented many commanders from telling him how bad the tank really was. Finally, after many senior leaders complained about its failings, Cotton ordered the problems fixed. That job fell to engineer Nikolai Shashmurin, who designed the speedier KV-1S. Cotton, impressed by Shashmurin's work, later assigned him to develop the intimidating IS-1, Josef uh, Stalin-1, which proved to be among the war's most successful heavy tanks. Yet, however, heavy tanks would ultimately fall out of favor after World War II, and Koshkin's medium T-34 series, again, secured the more lasting legacy. The T-34, like I said before, went on to influence the later class of main battle tanks, which are standard around the world today, but the IS-1, which led the Soviet charge into Berlin four years after the debacle at Rasenyai, nevertheless, owed itself to the KV's blunder. But the KV itself... Oh, that's an interesting project. You see, the KV tank came out of the heavy tank and the deep battle concepts in the Soviet Union. The concept of the deep battle, which contained the doctrinal use of the Soviet heavy tank, was first theorized during the late 20s, then refined and eventually adopted by the Red Army field regulations in 1936. The tactical deep battle doctrine advocated for fast battle tanks, BT series and T26, which we will talk about in another episode, because BT series is one of the things that, uh, well, Viktor Savorov uses to prove the preventive war concept, which is controversial to say the least, but it has a lot of evidence that could prove um, basically conclusive. However, it's an interesting thing. At any rate, there was also the reconnaissance types, T-27, T-37A, and T-38 tanks and tankettes, and medium or heavy penetration tanks, which were called Tijoli, well, the heavy ones. The latter were also called siege tanks and had to be able to resist most anti-tank gun calibers, either deployed by enemy infantry or other tanks, and to destroy them as well. They were to be placed on key tactical positions to drag and concentrate enemy fire, or destroy enemy fortified positions with assisting infantry. Protection was given priority over mobility. And, well, after the T-28, which was introduced by Voroshilov and Tukhachevsky, and Tukhachevsky was shot by Stalin in the purges, so... Yeah, uh, T-28 was a terrible, terrible idea. The T-35, which also was a terrible idea, became the first of these heavy tanks to enter the service within the USSR. T-35 
If you haven't heard of it, yeah, because it was a terrible, terrible idea. That tank was a true monster, influenced by the multi-threaded fad, which came from Great Britain, but it was... Uh, you could basically dig them up in cement and just allow the turrets to shoot because it was utter garbage, because it was basically an immobile thing. T-35 never really made any impact on the war, and it was just an awful design, which is more of a joke than a tank. Should probably give it another nice little episode on its own, because it was just so bad. Anyway, a new 1937 specification gave birth to T-100s and a unique SMK prototype, showing a new arrangement of firepower with tandem turrets. All three were tested in operations in Finland during the Winter War. They proved resistant, but showed very poor reliability and mobility. They were also costly, overcomplicated, and difficult to maintain. Another prototype, however, of the heavy tank, the KV, had been drawn by the same team which designed the SMK as a single turreted variant. During these operations, the two KV prototypes outperformed the others, and the type was subsequently approved for a 50-unit pre-series under the name of KV-1. The uh, TSKB-2 design bureau responsible for the SMK, through the chief designer Kotin, designed at first an all-welded hull with cast turret and large parts, with wide reinforced tracks and a torsion bar suspension. Alongside the SMK, the KV, named after the People's Defense Commissioner, and, like I said previously, a Commissar, which is awesome, if ever something's named after a Commissar in the Soviet Union, you know it's going to be great. Like, come on, it's a commissar. Kliment Voroshilov. And, you know, Voroshilov also is responsible for a bunch of rifle designs and all that stuff. Yeah, it was essentially a single turret variant. The weight saved being utilized for extra frontal and side protection without any sacrifice to mobility. Initially not meant for production, the KV was given approval from Stalin himself. Because Uncle Joe loved the thing. This model should have been named Kotin Stalin, KS-1 instead. A wooden mock-up was ready in April 1939, and first presentation to the general staff in September. Both prototypes were tested at the Kubinka Proving Grounds near Moscow, and immediately after in real combat conditions in Finland. Two KV prototypes in the first 50 Prasir's KV-1s are virtually identical, only differing by some redesigned parts for easier production. The hull, transmission, optics and torsion bar suspension were all borrowed for the SMK. Production was first assumed by Kirov Factory, and the first 50 were part of the Model 1939, but were delivered in March 1940. And let's talk about the design, because KV-1 is an interesting tank, like I said in the T-34 episode. Also, tanks had shorter battles in comparison to their turrets and to their sizes. KV-1 is a particularly interesting model. The model of 1939 was nearing 45 tons in weight with a long hull of um, 6.75 meters, that is 22.14 feet, relatively narrow if not for the very large tracks. The generous mudguards above gave exceptional room for storage. However, as no transmission was able to cope with such mass, the designers found an expedient giving both prototypes and the SMK an old but sturdy caterpillar system. Yeah, like I said, same tractor, USA. Which proved tricky, even unreliable in, well, given operations. The driver sat in the middle and the radio operator machine gunner sat on the left, the three other crew members being located in and below the turret. 
They had poor visibility with narrow vision slits. The driver had frontal slit made of poor quality laminated glass, which proved blurred most of the time, and his vision periscope had limited traverse. The commander, which also was the loader, had two turret periscopes. The wheel train comprised front idler wheels and rear drive sprockets like on the T-28 and a set of six twin road wheel bogies, each sprung to an independent torsion bar apparatus. There were also, due to the weight of the tracks, three large and thick return rollers. These large tracks had an excellent traction on soft ground, snow and mud, which was excellent for Russia, not so good for Finland, where they had to drive on those roads, and uh, they were slow as hell, and you couldn't see anything out of them. The protection, reaching 19mm, 3.45 inches on the front, glass eye and turret, was unrivaled for the time. If not for red equivalents like the British Matilda II, 80mm or 3.15 inches, and the French B1 bis, 70mm or 2.76 inches, but way ahead of any German tank. Now, at first, the 76.2mm F-32 cannon was chosen as the main armament, but due to the delays in production, the first 50 pre-series models and all remaining model 1939s were equipped with a medium-velocity short battle L-11 of the same caliber, fitted with a recognizable recuperator above the battle. The F-32 was able to fire armor-piercing F-32, 342 rounds and high explosive shells. The BR 3502 AP rounds were capable of reaching 612 meters per second, that is uh, 2007 feet per second, and I really hate using imperial metric systems for this because, geez, the conversion rates are just crazy. Uh, so, sorry, uh, use metric, it's just better. I'll just use metric from now on, because using Imperial and just doing Google Translate all the time for these scripts just takes up my time, and it's just weird. You're going to have to learn metric, comrades. That's what we use in the Soviet Union, and I'm really sorry. But soon enough, I hope that at least, if you don't learn anything else from this show, might be I'll be able to teach you a bit of metric. Anyhow, this gave these tanks a 66mm which is 2.6 inches, armor-piercing capacity at 500 meters, which is, for unknown reasons, 1,640 feet. Okay, bit of a sidetrack here. Okay, so I'm, I'm a bit tired. I'm a bit tired of using metric and imperial all the time, because metric is what I grew up with, and metric is what I know, and I grew up using metric, and all the people who say that imperial is better because it's based on human measurements. Yeah, it's based on the measurements in the British King. You drop that off, why don't you drop off Imperial? See, um, metric is amazing, and uh, up until someone says that, oh no, NASA used the Imperial when landing on the moon. No, no, they didn't. NASA has always used metric. NASA uses metric because metric is the universal scientific measurement system. NASA did not use Imperial to land on the moon. They used metric to land on the moon. So I'm using the moon landing units, which is metric units. Metric is awesome because, well, you can take one cubic centimeter of water, which would be one milliliter of water, and it takes one calorie of energy to increase its temperature by one degree Celsius. Oh, and it weighs one gram. So uh, how many exactly cubic 
inches of water are in a gallon of water. And what insane measurements of energy would you use to increase that amount by one degree Fahrenheit? Your things are not tied together. Even your guns, that's that's exactly why your guns, like, everyone knows about the 9mm pistol, right? That is why you have guns and their calibers measured in millimeters. That's why the 9mm pistol exists as the standard. Why? Because it is just easier and makes way more sense. If you're doing some homeward working or whatever, that's one thing. But if I'm doing all the tanks and all the technical details, yeah... Converting 500 meters, which is half of a kilometer, to feet just makes my head ache. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! 
use weights and measuring cups. Metric is better, rent over, back to tanks, you're not getting anything else in inches or feet anymore because, oh my god, so much technical data, so much craziness, I will just use the metric because it is far superior and I'm using professional military data here. And guess what? Even your military uses metric. And guess what? Your imperial system, the Americans, is defined by the metric system. No, literally. How long a foot is is defined in centimeters. Not even kidding. Imperial system is the derivative of the metric system at this point, so why don't you just fucking switch and be like your good cousins, the Canadians, who have done so. Also, fuck pints. Pints are stupid. Use half a liters. Like half a liter of beer, a bit tinier than a pint. Screw that shit. British have left the EU, and I would like to give them a stiff upper lip and tell them to, well, you switch the metric to everything else. I don't give a fuck about your pints. Now that that rant is over, which needed to be done at some point because I can't stand everything that's like when I'm dealing with these numbers, I can go back to um, all the data. Anyhow. The BR-3502 AP rounds were capable of reaching 620 meters per second, giving them a 66mm armor-piercing capability at 500 meters. Secondary armament comprised of a coaxial DT-7.62mm machine gun in a rear turret ball mount, and then mounted in a hull ball mount and an extra AA mount on the model 1942. The engine was 12-cylinder diesel model V1, giving... 600 horsepower at 2,000 RPM, which is 450 kilowatts, and then V2 model, model 1940, fed with a 650 liters capacity storage. In all, 141 model 1939s were delivered, followed by 250 of the model 1940s. Most were delivered during the 1940 and early 1941. The model 1940, also called KV-1A, was equipped with a longer F-32 gun and a new mantlet. When production began, the German invasion was on its way. The Kirov factory was later moved at Chelyabinsk during the winter of 1941, and a new model was designed. Before the model 1941 production started and the factory was relocated near the Urals, many KV-1s were taken over for an expedient armor improvement. These versions, called Ikranami, with screens, received tailored 20mm soft steel plates bolted on with huge bolts as an applique to the turret, frontal glacy, and the sides of the hull. These KV-1Es were mostly surviving units of the earlier model, 1939, which were upgunned with the F-32 in the same process and later 1940 and 1941 models, sometimes damaged or recovered tanks. Exact number of this variant remains unknown, to be honest. Some sources speak of 150 to 200 units being converted in 1942. This was a response to the new German tactics, hostily devised in the spot to counter the impenetrable KV-1, which still bogged down and was killed by Molotov cocktails thrown into the patches, but whatever. The introduction of the new PAC-38 and PAC-40A anti-tank guns and later some airborne weapons, like the MK-101 fielded by the Henschel 129 ground attack aircraft, urged this conversion. 
Total armor thickness was around 120 to 120 millimeters, making the KV once again nearly impenetrable. Then comes the KV-1B, Model 1941. The Model 1941 was designed and produced at Chelyabinsk. A Model F-34 gun was fitted. This was the same gun installed on most T-34-76s. Because, you know, at that point, those tanks had become the main battle tanks. As a response to the field experiment, applique armor, the hull, sides and turret were protected by an additional 25-35mm to 35 millimeters of extra armor and the turret was now cast instead of welded. This version also introduced many simplifications for mass production. However, it was slow to arrive at the front and the first model, 1941, became operational in early to mid-1942 at best. The late production tanks received an even longer barreled gun, the ZIS-5 76.2mm one, the same gun, longer barrel. This increased somewhat its penetrating performances, however by the fall of 1942, new German tanks like Panzer IV F2 and the 15mm armed late Panzer III's outranged the KV-1 while still being able to pierce it. And I will probably make a series of the Panzer tanks and the Panther tanks and all those German tanks because, you know, I kind of have to look at German tanks as well at some point, because if we're talking tank history, the German tanks deserve it. Then I'll get to the United States tanks as well, even though you guys should probably have some aircraft carrier history. That again, making an episode about United States aircraft carriers is kind of what the eastern border is not about, so... Uh, Hello, Naval History Podcast. I want to hear more about the Battle of Midway and some aircraft categories in the United States. Please, please make an episode. He hasn't done so since June 2019, so poke him. Poke him. Speed was reduced further in these tanks, and this proved an issue in combined operations alongside the T-34s. Production of this model was around 1,200 units, according to the factory log. And then came the KV-1C, model 1942. The model 1942 was essentially a laid-up up-armored model, 10 to 15 millimeters on either side, either with a cast or welded turret. This was uh, also the biggest production of the type, with around 1,700 units. They were also all armed with a 76.2 millimeters ZIS-5 cannon and sometimes equipped with anti-air mounts. However, criticism about the series prompted parallel studies to improve the KV-1 as a whole. These reports stated that its only asset was excellent protection, however, speed and agility were poor. The transmission proved often prone to breakdowns, the suspensions, crumbling under the raising weight, also showed critical stress failures, as well as the overwhelmed engine, the V2K, a modified version of the T-34 diesel. Final weight of this 1942 version was around 48 tons. Only the German Tiger was equivalent in weight, but was equipped with better optics and a gun, which far outclassed anything on the field. This led to the last two last improved versions of the type before the production really stopped in favor of better designs. And then, then there's, well, the second to last version of the KV tank, the KV-1S, the fast one. The main criticism about the weight imposed the completely revised version with a somewhat downgraded armor in order to regain some agility. It was not an equal sacrifice. Some vital parts determined after carefully studied statistics about tank loss reports were still well protected while sacrificing others. This was a near all-or-nothing protection which also came with special tactical maneuver instructions in order to reduce the exposure of these weak spots of the enemy. 
However, the engine was untouched. Another improvement concerned the cast turret, which was redesigned completely. Lower, smaller, but slightly sloped sides, and most importantly, for the first time, fitted with a real commander cupola, bearing all-around vision blocks, which in turn greatly improved the overall vision and efficiency of the commander. However, this KV-1S, uh, the S stands for Skarasnoe, the fast one, was still much more expensive than the T-34-76, which was, well, just the better tank, and the main tank, and the tank that you think about, for the relative same performances. By the late 1943, there were concerns about the cancellation of this new version, which occurred after 1,370 had been delivered from autumn 1942 to the fall of 1943. Total light was 42 tons, and protection ranged from 30 to 75 millimeters. The main armament, again, still 76.2 millimeter cannon, L-42 was fed by 114 rounds and the three DT machine guns by the 3,000 rounds. At any rate, at any rate, the last KV variant that actually happened with this heavy tank strategy was the one that led to the IS-1. And we'll talk about the IS tanks, because those are the Josef Stalin tanks and their true powerhouses. See, Another strong criticism about the KV-1 concerned its main armament, which was the same as the medium main battle tank of the Red Army, uh, the well-known and well-spoken of T-34. But the KV-1 was more expensive and with less mobility. A better gun could have effectively saved the KV-1, making something compatible to the latest version of the Panzer IV or the Tiger. By 1943... Lieutenant Colonel Kotyan's technical bureau was split in two, a part being affected to study a new stopgap heavy tank based on the KV-1, waiting for its replacement to come. The team naturally chose the improved KV-1S, but increased the armor protection in vital parts to 110mm, and widened slightly the hull to accommodate the larger turret and gun. The 85mm D-5T, which was also chosen to equip the IS-1, the Josef Stalin 1. Due to its interim position, the KV-85 was only produced in limited quantity by the beginning of 1943. 143 units of this ultimate version would be delivered until the production stopped for good. The KV-85 had the same engine as its predecessors and was 46 tons strong with thickness of 60mm, 75mm in frontal glacis to 110mm in turret front, sides and rear. Max speed was around 40 km per hour and range of uh, 250 km. The DT-5 gun was a shorter derivative of the original 85mm anti-air gun and with 782 meters per second muzzle velocity. That was the thing. That was the final version before the IS-1 came into being. At any rate, the KV-1 tank, which is well known by the players of the World of Tanks game, is an interesting story. It was a strategy of building extra heavy tanks. Didn't work out that well. And again, like I've told you, it was basically outclassed by T-34 in every possible way. However, KVs still were a nightmare for German soldiers at the beginning of the war. But the problem is that they were just as much of a nightmare to the people piloting them. So, that's the story of the KV battle tank. I hope I've given you enough information and statistic data because, like I said, the only major battle where KVs played a role 
Yeah, 29 were lost. Not good. Hard to explode, but hard to shoot anything. And trying to just fix it up, you know, backwards. Not very good. But, again, led to development of the IS tanks, Joseph Stalin tanks, and the T-34s. I think that's the best quality of the KV-1. Well, I'm gonna get to the German tanks at some point as well. Might as well do guns at some point too. Hope you enjoyed the episode, because next one's gonna be um, a bit more weird, because I can't really get stories out, but I've gotten some old newspapers from the Soviet era. But yeah, we'll get to something interesting. Just don't forget to check out rusensoft.com, our sponsors, and have a great day, and do свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.